We are, we're in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 9 tonight, and by the chapter 9, I mean all of chapter 9. The, the lectionary gives us uh, a story that takes the entire chapter, and uh, it's a story you're probably somewhat familiar with. Um, to be perfectly honest, I feel like there's about 12 different sermons happening inside this text, but uh, we'll, we'll get to, we'll kind of pick a lane and go with it today, but um, it's a great story, but it is, it is a longer read, so stick with me, but let's go ahead and read uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. I keep forgetting to look up the page number in the Pew Bible if you want to pull it out. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well if you want to follow along and watch me uh, when I mess up whatever word I mess up. Uh, John 9, verse 1, begins like this. As he, that's Jesus, walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither did this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back and was able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am he. But they kept asking, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and I washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him before the Pharisees. They brought before the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how it was he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he listens to one who worships him and obeys his will. 
Never since the world began has it been heard of anyone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. You are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus had heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were there heard him say this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. I know, it's a lot of reading. It's a really great story, though. I love this story. And I think it points towards something that's kind of universally true about us as humans, which is we have a real ability to be completely convinced of things that we actually have no idea about. I find myself doing this. I'm sure you do, too. Every once in a while, someone will ask a question or a topic brought up, and you immediately spout out an answer. And I've done this before. I'll spout out an answer, and then this kind of internal monologue will click in, and I'll go, I don't really know if that's true. I don't know why I said that so confidently and I was really kind of ready to fight for something I didn't know anything about. I think that's something we as humans kind of have. I think my favorite version of this is when someone tries to argue their maybe ignorant ideas about a thing with a person who has deep experience in that area, right? This happens to me a lot as someone who was not born in Mississippi but now lives here. I've got a lot of friends still down in South Florida. And a lot of the times when I end up talking to people about Mississippi, They'll start saying things about Mississippi very confidently that they know, although they've never been here. And I'll find myself going, oh, interesting. But um, actually, we do have indoor plumbing, and uh, that's not how it works. You know, the Klan is not walking up and down the streets that way and doing all these kind of things. Right? They have Mississippi burning in their mind, or they have something they've seen from you know, 150 years ago, and that's what they think it is. And I, and I, have, I don't know a lot, but I have 20 years' experience here now. I know what it is and what it isn't. I think what we see in this story is a group of people who have an idea of how something should be against someone who has an experience that doesn't fit into their idea. I was actually preparing for the sermon this week when I was in Charlotte, and I was getting up in the morning and going to this place to eat breakfast. I like to prepare sermons over breakfast. I don't know why. I just do. And I was thinking about this idea, and I was thinking, what would be a good example of something like this happening? And this elderly guy came up and sat next to me at this kind of like, do you call it a bar at the breakfast place? Where you're not at a table, you're at the bar. I'm at the bar at uh, 7 a.m. And this guy saddles up next to me uh, to get his pancakes. And uh, the, the woman who was the waitress uh, had a pretty strong accent and uh, was from Russia. I thought that's what her accent was, but she ended up, I heard her saying it to someone else. And the guy who came and sat next to me was obviously kind of a regular. She knew his name and they you know, were immediately kind of talking or whatever. I'm trying to pay attention. I'm focusing on the Lord. I don't have time for people. And uh, as I'm sitting there and I'm, and I'm doing, and I'm trying to think through what, what would be a good story about this, I hear this guy, and this kind of catches my ear. He's, he's, he's spouted off a lot of information about a lot of things in a short amount of time. He's just kind of one of those people. And then he says to the woman, um, he says, well, you know what Russia's really known for, right? And then that's when I was like, hmm, okay, I'm listening. 
And she, she had kind of been listening to him half-heartedly and being nice because, of course, you know, her tip hadn't been left yet and she's trying to be nice to the customers. And, uh, and when, he, when he came up with the, you know what's true about Russia, right? She stopped what she was doing and she kind of stopped and looked at him and said, what's that? And the man said, with all the confidence in the world and no sense that this might even be remotely offensive, he said, well, all Russian men drink too much and they all beat their women. And she stopped and her head kind of tilted a little bit and she said, what? He said, all the men are alcoholics, and they all abuse their wives. And she took a breath, and she looked at him, and she said, that's just not true. And he said, what is the, the siren song of our day today? To a woman from Russia, who has only recently moved to the United States, spent her entire life there, says, sure it's true. Google it. It's on the internet. And he wasn't trying to be funny. <laughs> You'll see I'm right. Google it. And uh, she had this look on her face where you could tell she wasn't sure, am I going to let this go or am I going to unload on this guy or whatever. And I, was, I wanted to see what happened, right? I thought, I mean, how much, is it, how much can this guy really tip? Just go ahead and blow this guy out of the water because I know you want to. You could see it in her eyes. And she responded in a way that was actually kind of genius because it ended up kind of making him laugh uh, but also kind of put him in this place. And her response was, and I wrote it down right there, because I thought it was so great. She said, you don't really know what you're talking about. Men don't treat us like that there. Anyways, we drink way more than the men. <laughs> Have you ever tried to outdrink a Russian woman? <laughs> and he said, no. And she said, no, you haven't. And then he kind of laughed and they went on. I think she, he still left the tip. So she did a great job with it. But I, I, I just, that encounter was perfect, right? It's someone who had this entire lived experience and this other person who knew the right answer telling her about her lived experience. Uh, these are the kinds of gifts you pray for when you're writing a sermon for this to happen right there. And today's story, I think, is at least in part what happens when those who know the answers meet someone who has a story that doesn't fit their prefabricated way of looking at the world. And as always, those who know decide to die on the hill of their expertise instead of considering the new story before them. And I get it. You just got to ignore it, right? Because how do you argue with a story? It's kind of hard to argue with. And this whole narrative shows us what happens when what we know, quote-unquote, meets what is actually happen, happening, and we can't let go of what we know. I think we've all been there. The what we know is set up immediately in this story by the disciples of Jesus. Uh, the, the author intentionally puts this at the beginning of the story. They see this blind man begging, and the thing they say is, Who sinned, this man or his family? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Notice there's only two options that they can even imagine happening in this situation. Who sinned, this man or his parents? This doesn't just set up the way the disciples are thinking. This sets up the entire world that this man must navigate on the day-to-day -day, uh, basis of his already difficult life. This man, forced into, de into dependence on other people from day one, must also live as guilty in all their eyes. Guilty of some imaginary crime that he knows he never committed. Guilty in the working eyes of every person from whom he must beg for charity. The disciples, these who were even with Jesus, cannot even imagine a third choice regarding why this person doesn't have sight. 
he must have sinned or his family must have sinned. Someone did something wrong for this to happen. And this guy's just paying the bill. You could argue that the inability to physically see was not even the most devastating part of what's happened for this man. In fact, it seems later on in the story, he's not even connected to his own family anymore. There's kind of a coldness and a distance when the Pharisees go and approach his family to get their opinion on things. When they get questioned, they don't stick up for him. They cover their own selves. They're not just, and they are scared of the authorities, it tells us, but they've also, it seems, distanced themselves from the one that they could be taking care of and who's out there begging by, uh, by himself. This man cannot see, yes, but worse than that, he's isolated. He's vulnerable to this world. He is alone. And everyone believes it's his fault, when it most certainly is not. He's not really known by anyone around him, not understood, not needed, not valued. He is living what is all of our worst nightmares. It's our worst nightmare come true. It's the thought that haunts us. What if one day this is true of us? Every human being dreads this idea. And what do we do whenever we face someone living the story of our nightmares out in real life? We all desperately search for a reason. Why is this happening? Something to explain it. We ask all kinds of loaded questions that will help put distance between us and that person. And you've all heard them before. All kinds of loaded questions that really amount, I believe, to different versions of it's their fault, right? Really? He was pretty young. I mean, was he taking care of himself? Did he eat well? Was he exercising? Oh, man, that's a terrible diagnosis. Were they using deodorant with aluminum in it? Is that, is that what happened? I mean, were they still doing date nights? What were they doing to keep the romance alive? Did they save money when the, before the economy turned down and they were both doing well? They didn't put anything away? But what was she wearing? What was she doing in that place anyways? The subtext of all these questions that we immediately begin to ask when we are faced with uh, someone else living out our nightmare, all of these questions amount to, some, amount to some version of, it is kind of their fault, right? There's a reason for this, Right? And if it isn't their fault, well, it's got to be their parents' fault, right? It has to be someone's fault. Otherwise, otherwise we must face the awful truth that it could have been us or might one day be. I need some distance between me and them because it makes me feel safer and more special and more above it. It lets me know that it won't ever be me stumbling around and holding out a hand for donations from those who despise me. I think this is natural. I think you hear it every time. A tragedy happens. I think it's a natural mode for us to sleep into, but there, slip into, but there is a couple of major problems with it for us as Christians, as followers of Christ. First, I'm pretty sure you can't really love someone you blame, which is problematic because we're called, first and foremost, to love whoever we come across. Secondly, it assumes the place of God, the ability to see and understand fully, to know things that really, truly are not ours to know. And finally, and I want to kind of run down this road a little bit today, it's not a world that leaves much room for grace. If everything is a meritocracy, if everything is earned and there's a reason and I've done this, so therefore I get that, better for better or for worse, if it's all really earned, good or bad, where would grace even fit in? Then the haves get to ignore the have-nots, 
How can these religious leaders learn from someone so far beneath them in a meritocracy? What worthwhile story can we hear from the man born in nothing but sin? In that world, there are no real tragedies. There are no free gifts. There's just getting what you deserve. There's no space for grace. Grace violates all of our preconceived notions and expectations of how God and the world should or do work. I think religion at its worst leaves no room for grace because it already has everything mapped out and figured out. The boundary set, the blueprint has been figured. The cookie cutter has been formed. Those edges are there and everything must cram into the parameters. Grace is poisonous to the religious worldview that this man is forced to live within. No one can figure out what is going on. Grace posits the idea that there are free gifts, that all gifts are free gifts, that we don't get what we deserve, and that that is actually good news. Grace allows God to do what God wants, when God wants, to whomever God chooses. In grace, God enters into our stories and gives good gifts wildly, indiscriminately, and with abandon to the very person that you have dismissed or devalued. In this instance that we read today, grace undoes every conviction the religious leaders hold so closely. And you can see how disturbing that is to them. They will grasp at anything to wrestle control back, to try to make it fit. They grasp every straw. That story is super redundant. They keep asking the same thing over and over again. They keep rehashing the same court case, trying to make it work the way they want it to. We will be willing to believe anything except what is actually happening, right? They interrogate him. They talk to everyone around him. They even call his parents, and then they talk to him again. The blind man is now seeing, and they're grasping at everything except the good news that's right in front of them. Why? Because if his story is true, what does that say about everything they know? So what can we learn from this today? What can we learn from this story and from these religious leaders and this man who was blind but now can see? I think we learn a couple things. I think first we can refuse to practice that kind of religion, the kind that misses God right in front of it. We can refuse to practice the kind of religion that leaves no room for God to act in unexpected and gracious ways. Why did bad things happen to him? Why did good things happen to her? We don't know. And that's okay. The, only, the one who actually sees God in the story is the one who keeps saying, I don't know. And there's probably a lesson there. We don't have to have an explanation for everything. It doesn't have to fit neatly into our own preconceived ideas. Maybe a little humility is in order as we walk through this confusing mess of a world. We can stop believing that our job is primarily about arriving at all the answers and then minding the boundaries and convincing everyone else to get on board. We can cease being the cookie cutter in the cookie cutter business and join the mystery of a living and active God of grace. A God who can and will surprise us and meet us when, with unanticipated mercy and grace and love if we are just open to it. We can open ourselves up to the good news that God can move even in the darkest places of each other's lives. That as the psalmist says, the most broken and contrite parts of ourselves is what God seeks from us most. 
We can believe in grace that brings sight to the most blind parts of ourselves and our community. That even if we or our neighbor has never seen anything clearly, things can miraculously change. That it's not the end of our story. That our boundaries are not fixed when it comes to God's grace and a God who lives among us and with us. And finally, I think we can keep telling our stories and keep listening intently to each other's. I've spent a lot of time reading theology, sitting in classes, more than I should, arguably. And we can spend an eternity arguing the finer points of theology, philosophy, politics, and the like. There are literally libraries filled with writings. We can spend eternity arguing about those finer points. And none of them get to dictate our lived reality. Eventually, it all meets a story someplace. They can help us, maybe that theology may be able to help us understand our stories. Maybe they can switch the lens with which we view them. Maybe they can even help to form them. But at the end of the day, we follow an incarnate God, a God who lives and breathes among us. A God who becomes flesh and blood in order to know, be known and to understand and to be understood. A God that dwells with us and makes a story with us. Eventually, at the end of the day, with all, of this, all these learned people, all these folks who know so much about God, at the end of the day, all that's really known is that there was a guy who was blind, and now he sees. And that guy made it happen. Sorry if it doesn't fit your worldview. Sorry if your theology never told you about this possibility. Sorry if the story does irreparable damage to the narrative you've constructed for yourself. As it turns out, no one needed to clear it with you in the first place. This is a lesson I think we would all do well to absorb. We hear a lot of dismissing of other people's stories in our world today. I grew up in a church that majored in it. I've sat in rooms before and uh, heard uh, white people very specifically tell black people what was really happening in their story. And it was every bit as annoying as you might think it would be. I grew up in a church of, uh, as far as we knew, Straight folks telling people who were not straight exactly what their experience was in the world, even though we had no idea. I hear a lot of liberals telling conservatives what they really think and why they're really doing what they're doing, and I hear a lot of conservatives returning the favor. We just have a lot of people who understand everything, guarding the boundaries they've established. And into that, a God of grace, who is incarnate, took on flesh and blood, it dwelt in this messy, complicated world full of possibilities just doesn't quite fit. So listen to the stories. Tell the stories. So we remove ourselves from trying to determine what God can and can't do for others, but we also give ourselves the same grace. Maybe we leave the door open to the possibilities for ourselves as well. Maybe we remain open to the idea that God can still bring light into the darkest places in our own lives, that maybe one day we will have our own miracle to talk about. For ourselves and for others, we remove the imaginary lines that we've made up and stop forcing expectations on a limitless God. Instead, we choose God, we choose grace, we choose love that is unconditional and the mysterious gift of it all. We choose to believe the know-it-alls don't and that blindness is a temporary condition for all of us. Let's pray.
God, we are grateful um, for the story of this man in Scripture. A man who is never named, a man who is only known by his condition, defined by that condition. We are thankful for the story that shows the grace and hope and love that you bring even our most hopeless situations. We are thankful for your story connecting with his story. We are thankful that he was more than what he was known to be. God, we're thankful for those things, but we also confess. We confess that we, uh, like the Pharisees in the story, like the religious elites of the story, are very drawn to neat narratives, to frameworks and stories that we have built that we want everyone else to fit in so it makes us feel a little safer. So God, we ask that you help us to sacrifice that safety for the truth of a limitless God acting in this world. May we not be so fixated on our own understanding that we miss the living God in front of us. Lord, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.